and welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, The Thrill, for the week of April 17th. On this week's show, Comic Relief, our podcast talks to the podcast king, Mark Marin about the intersection of comedy interviewing and whether comedians really have to be darker people. Memoir she wrote, why are personal essays so popular and should millennials be the ones sharing their lives so far? We'll talk to Monica Heisey about just that. And introducing The Kill, in a semi-regular segment we're going to do from time to time, one of us takes on a pop culture thing that we hate, and the other two debate it. I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. And this is The Thrill. People are more interested in comedy than ever before. That's because of TV shows like Louie and the new The Comedians, and the rise of comedy podcasts like You Made It Weird and Comedy Bang Bang. Twitter, too, has become a place for comedians to try new material out, and there's also the new interest in the raw humanity of the people in question, certainly in the wake of the death of Robin Williams. And so joining us on the phone is Mark Marin. He's the host of WTF, one of the world's most popular podcasts where he interviews uh, celebrities, comedians, and the like. And he's also a stand-up comic. He also created Marin, a self-lacerating show about comedy on IFC. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Let's talk. So, Mark, you're in this really interesting place, I think, where, you know, you do comedy, which is this very insular craft, but you're also a professional interviewer now. And so I'm interested in the intersection between comedy and interviewing. Uh, Are there commonalities, do you find, between your comedy life and your podcasting life? And is it ever difficult to split the two? Talking to other people over time is is incredibly, uh, you know, nourishing on a soul level because, you know, you start to think less about yourself. You listen to other people's stories. You know, you talk to other people in a different way, uh, and that, I think, will, you know, show itself in, in a relationship with an audience eventually as well. So mm-hmm. it does feed, you know, one feeds the other and, 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 and vice versa. Yeah, and there was that episode with Chris Delia uh, that you did recently where you talked about, you know, being uncomfortable and how uncomfortable you are at all times. And that struck me, too, the idea that in journalism, uh, the thing you're most scared of is uncomfortable silences that can happen between people, right? And, but in comedy, that can be reality, too, that, that kind of uncomfortable silence. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great moment when everything's quiet and you're on stage in front of 500 people or 1,000 people. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing, you know, kind of lonely but incredibly free and insanely loaded moment. Uh, for, in terms of silence and interview, I, sometimes you, you just have to learn how to let that happen. It's uh, an emotionally loaded silence uh, because those are, those are great moments. And, but also the panic of just engaging. Which I don't feel uh, as much as I used to uh, getting on stage, but by somebody coming over, I, I do get pretty, you know, worked up and pretty sort of freaked out about, you know, how it's going to go or whether it's going to go and, you know, how this, you know, how are we going to sit down and, and, and get into it? You, you know, that always happens before guests come over. You know, I sort of pace around. Uh, kind of anxious about, you know, what, what it's going to be like. And so even, you know, 500 episodes in or whatever, you still find yourself scared in that way? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's just because to- you don't know what's going to happen. You know, with a, with a comedy show, it's, you know, the context is what it is. You know, I, you know, I, I'm driving that and, 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 you know, either I'm going to you know, be funny and it's going to work. And, but I kind of know where I'm going to go. And I kind of know, you know, I have, uh, I, I've done certain things that I'm going to do on stage before. I know what works and what doesn't work for a lot of it. Uh, and what I can expect, but with another human being, and, and given that I, I don't really ask questions as much as try to engage in a conversation, I don't know what the hell's going to happen. <laughs> you know, so there's something nerve-wracking about not knowing what the hell's going to happen. 
So the the way it kind of used to work, as far as I understand it anyway, is that comedians would just like try to get gigs from where they were from, the tri-state area, maybe eventually move on to comedy clubs in big cities like New York and L.A. and then hope to get on late night. But um, these days, it, it's, you know, like people can make, anyone can make a podcast uh, in their, their basement or their garage. And um, Twitter has kind of become this global public notebook for comedians. And there was like that recent um, Trevor Noah incident. So um, how does the social media presence change how comics evolve, you think? Well, I don't really know. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about comics, you know, and uh, comedians who do the job of a comedian that, you know, they, they sell tickets and, and they get on stage and they make people laugh for an allotted part of, you know, chunk of time, and they are paid for that. I mean, th- that part has not changed. So, so whether or not somebody gets known for, you know, I don't know how they all relate in what you're asking me. Like the Trevor Noah thing was really sort of a, a gotcha bit of business. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know it, 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 censorship or self-censorship. Or, or, or uh, you know, uh, you know, predatory, um, you know, justice seekers or trolls, you know, an issue, uh, you, you know, on Twitter or with people who, who express themselves freely on Twitter, what seems to be an issue, but how that affects, how that's going to affect his job, I, I don't know. He seems to be absorbing it well, and you know, he's got defenders and uh, as well as people and detractors around that, but. How it affects the process of becoming a comedian, it doesn't matter because ultimately you either can do the job or you can't. And an Internet sensation can do the job for a little while, maybe, but if part of the job is or your job is being a comedian, uh, you got to get up on stage and entertain people for an allotted amount of time for, for you know, a decided-upon amount of money. And, and you got to do that over and over again. That's always the job. How people get there, uh, who knows? But uh, you know, ultimately, you have to be relatively consistent about being able to do that job. Yeah, but there are things that work on Twitter that don't work on stage. It's a, like that's a, it's a, you know, it's a whole different format. These platforms. I mean, they're, they're really the biggest issue. You, you know, it's like you know, the stage is the stage. You know, it, it's very basic, and it's been the same way since you know, you know, people, humans start entertaining each other. You know, a guy gets on up there with you know a, a limited amount of tools, or, or maybe a lot of tools. And, and does his thing. You know, with comedy, it's pretty stripped down. You know, you just got a microphone. So that is what it is. You know, Twitter is what it is. You know, YouTube is what it is. The, the bigger issue around this stuff for comics is obviously, one, you know, people recording material that they shouldn't be recording while it's being generated or created and killing it for the comic. That's a problem. And the other, more of a comic-specific problem is the, the demand is that, because of how accelerated social media is and how uh, accessible uh, everything is and how hungry people are for content and new things on a daily basis, that the demand for new material can be very taxing in the sense that, you know, we all now feel we have to generate, you know, at least an hour of new material a year just to feed expectations because people churn through things like children. And, uh, you know, that becomes a little challenging, I think, for some people. There's been a lot of talk lately, uh, especially in the wake of Robin Williams' death. And you actually had him on your show and resurfaced that podcast uh, after his death uh, about whether stand-up comedians are essentially darker people, that you have to have this darkness to be a good stand-up comedian. How much do you think that's true? I used to think it was true. I don't think it's true anymore. I I think that I've I've talked to a lot of people in, in all different areas of comedy and entertainment. And I used to have that that romanticized, you know, idea 
uh, of the comic being the sad clown, uh, or you know that you know out of depression comes these you know amazing comedians. Uh, there have been a few obviously amazing comedians. There's been plenty of tortured people in comedy. Uh, I don't know percentage-wise if, if you know uh, the ratio is any different. You know in, in plumbing or, or or web design. I don't know. Uh, it's like drug problems. It's not like you know, the comedians have drug problems. These celebrities. Like, I don't know relative to other professions if the numbers would really be any different. Uh, you know, we live more public lives. But I do know that, you know, a good comic is struggling with something. And I think all people are struggling. And the intensity of that struggle and what comes out of that struggle is really the difference between, you know, the guy, you know, who's in a job he doesn't like and doesn't get to talk and the guy who does comedy. You know, if you need to make jokes to relieve the struggle, whether they're jokes about the struggle specifically or jokes that completely are imaginative that just get people out of the struggle, uh, you know, that's really you know, more common than you know, depression or darkness. I just think that a lot of times comics are maybe, if anything, uh, more acutely sensitive uh, uh, to the world around them, and they sort of have to be. So that's what I think. So who are your favorite up-and-coming comedians? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I got, I got a few I like. Um, I, I, I love Nate Bargetsy. He's a clean comic, you know, out of uh, originally from uh, Tennessee, uh, and his father was a, a professional magician. And I think he's, uh, I think he's my hilarious. my dad is an entertainer as well. He's a magician, still is a magician, uh, but but just in a, like he started as a clown. Like, I don't want to come up here and come off like I come from some rich magic family and <laughs> I'm better than you guys, all right? He paid his dues, his clown dues. It's weird when your dad's a clown, though. It's weird every day. Uh, it made me not like clowns, you know? Like, because have you ever been yelled at by a clown? I have. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how confusing that is to get screamed at by a guy that's got a smile painting on his face? <laughs> You're like, is this good? It's not good. You know, he's one of those guys that has a, a very sort of kind of laid-back, you know, focused demeanor. That, and I think sometimes those comics have a little harder go at it than, than you know, more energetic types. But, you know, those are usually the guys that, you know, that have that a little slower groove and a, and a longer form uh, really, to, you know, can kind of get good deep laughs. I like that guy. Well, you, you know Maria Bamford. She's not new. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I like her. Um, who else have I been watching? My buddy Ryan Singer, you know, who I used to open sometimes. I like him. Uh, my, my buddy Dean Del Rey uh, seems to be uh, pushing This through. guy is crazy homophobic. Last summer, we go dirt bike riding, right? Just the two of us. We're out in the desert. We're tearing it up. We're having a great time. This guy crashes. He's laying there. He's bleeding. He's dying. Like, yeah, help me. I ride up on my bike, I go, dude, jump on the back, I'll take you to the hospital. He says this to me, I ain't going nuts to butts with you. <laughs> nuts to butts? Who says this? <laughs> Get on the back, dude, you are dying. <laughs> oh, no way, somebody might see us. Yeah, like a doctor. Let's go. Uh, who else? Yeah, there's, there's more. I can't think of them right away. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks, Mark.
Sure, buddy. Thank you for having me again. The third season of Mark Maron's TV show on the IFC network, Maron, starts on May 14th, and Canadians can check out his stand-up in Toronto on April 19th and in Vancouver on May 9th. Memoirs are having their moment. From Lena Dunham to Mindy Kaling to Cheryl Strayed to basically the entire graphic novel industry, authors are turning inward to tell funny stories of growing up, heartbreaking stories of loss, or stories finding something special in the routine. Monica Heisey is a 26-year-old Toronto-based writer and comedian who's written a book of essays, a humor advice book called I Can't Believe It's Not Better. In it, she tells you when you should stop drinking, there's a quiz uh, about when to text a boy back, and perhaps the loveliest story I've ever read about a first love interpreted through the history of the burrito. Uh, thanks for joining us, Monica. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I can actually vouch for Monica's advice because uh, before my first ever uh, stand-up set, I asked Monica for advice that I used, which was to go on Twitter and see my best jokes and see what worked. And I used that advice, and it worked to great success. Um, but I guess the question that you get a lot is, uh, what makes you qualified to give uh, to give people advice? Oh, I'm not qualified at all. <laughs> I think that's why it has to be a humor book. I'm... Um... A particular and not particularly popular combination of very anxious, so I love to overthink things, and very bossy, uh, which means I love to overthink things for other people and then tell them what I, a very anxious person, would do about it. So why did you write this book then? Um, I had a column on um, a blog called She Does the City, which is a a local Toronto-based blog, um, and it was called The Grown-Ass Woman's Guide, which kind of makes me cringe thinking about it. But we were all 21 at one point, um, and uh, it was advice because um, the most popular uh, stuff on the site and across most websites uh, that publish content like that is how-to stuff and sex stuff because basically humanity is uh, confused and horny all the time. So I was trying to deal with the confused part, um, and I found that I really enjoyed it um, because you get to sort of think about all of the different options that you have when presented with any situation in life and then meditate on those. Well, uh, so, you know, obviously memoirs and essays, they're really having this kind of moment right now. And it's especially true of like young people. Like, uh, for instance, Lena Dunham, there was all that criticism of her and like, who is this young woman who's giving advice to people? How that's that's crazy. And there's a lot of weird antagonism about that. Is that something that you get, the idea that, like, you're 26 and you're giving advice? I mean, I don't think I'm uh, famous enough to attract any ire. <laughs> so, so far, it's just been, like, friends and coworkers who are very <laughs> supportive. Um, but there is there is that weird misconception that, that young people don't have anything interesting to say or couldn't possibly offer any helpful wisdom. Oprah's, Oprah's magazine ran a thing about, like, what books to read or how to know when you found a good book. And one of the tips was avoid memoirs by anyone who hasn't heftily cracked their 30s, um, which would cut out a lot of great stuff, I think. Yeah, I feel like memoirs written by, um, I don't want to say millennial, but I guess millennial women or boomerang kids, as they say on the Globe and Mail. (laughs) I think there's another term for it also. Yeah, Um, you can make one up now if you wanted to. Uh, I feel like what's interesting about millennial memoirs is that they're sort of about finding yourself, and as corny as that is, that's sort of like a universal theme and will never really get old. Well, and that's become, it's a genre in fiction as well. Um, Like, I don't remember if it's called new adult. There's young adult now. There's another, like, emerging adult genre for fictional stories that are the same finding yourself story. So it's obviously something people are very interested in reading about. I just got the title of your book. I'm really embarrassed. (laughs) It's a dairy pun. It's a really good title. It's a non-dairy substitute pun. (laughs) 
<laughs> Does it ever worry you? Because I saw that uh, Lena Dunham really likes your book. I mean, I'm assuming that was really exciting when you first saw that. But do you feel like now you're always going to be compared to Lena Dunham or you'll be in like the Lena Dunham camp of writers? Uh, people really want to force women comedians and women writers into the Lena Dunham camp anyway mm -hmm. and being like above a size six as well and then writing sort of honestly I was like I'm very prepared for that <laughs> yeah. so the fact that she was on board actually is kind of nice yeah. because it was going to happen I think either way. There was uh, there was a thing that was written in McLean's uh, about the sort of rise of the female uh, essay writer, uh, and there was uh, an author I can't remember who, but she suggested that she was worried that essays are going to become like a female um, story form or a writing form that that essays or memoirs will become this essentially um, this literary form that is for women. Are, 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 do you find yourself worrying about that at all? What what what's the fear? behind that just that that it's like a shoehorning of, of women that like you, you know you can't write fiction you can't, should write essays or memoirs I mean I understand that anxiety a little bit because historically sort of diary writing and letter writing were the only forms of writing available to women um, but those kinds of writing didn't get to be published so I don't know if it's a problem that women are uh, embracing a particular kind of writing because it's published now and it's not, I don't think, looked down upon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I also feel like it's more a sign, it's a good thing, it's more a sign that women are at the top of the publishing game. Like, memoirs are just really popular, women happen to be writing them, and like romance novels are really popular. It's like a multi-billion dollar industry that's run almost exclusively by women. I'm writing an article about that, that's why I mentioned it. Yeah, the, yeah. Co the cover of the book, I remember saying to my agent, I just don't really want it to be pink mm -hmm. because I don't want it to look like it's only for women. I think uh, male readers could get a lot out of it as well. What about black and pink? <laughs> just like a hard Avril yeah. Lavigne program. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was like, I don't want it to be pink because I don't want it to seem like it's only for women. And she was like, uh, women buy books. Women are, are the majority of the publishing market. So if you're appealing to women, you're doing okay. Mm -hmm. And it's strange. I mean, so Megan Dom... Uh, there's this quote that she said that uh, I can't tell you how many publishers and agents over the years told me, don't write essays, it'll ruin your career. Or if you must write them, call them true tales or notes from a life. Just don't use the word essay, which I find strange insofar that now we're in this place where the essay is kind of, it is a form that like is obviously selling. True tales would be a much more embarrassing title for a collection of essays. <laughs> or notes from a life. I think notes from a life, I can't think of it. It just a way sounds to like you're that. dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you put your hand on your forehead. Notes from a life. <laughs> yeah, there's a, just a quill, a picture of a quill as the cover of that book. I think that a lot of people assume that essays, especially written by women, are just another way of saying that they're confessionals and that it's kind of like uh, a socially sanctioned version of a diary. Did you ever run into any kind of criticism like that while you were making this? Uh, I had still get a lot of that because I write, um, I make my living writing online, and I write a lot about sex, um, but I don't usually write about my own sex life, but there is a certain assumption that everything I write about is about my own preferences. So, you know, I wrote about, um, uh, I don't know, ob objectum sexuality, which is people who uh, are sexually attracted to inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. And people were like, crazy, wild. <laughs> it's not, a, I mean, it would be fine if it was about me, but it's not about me. Right. Um, so there is a tendency, I think, with women that you don't get with men to equate what they're writing about as like something they're personally experiencing or more personally invested in for some reason. Why do you think people consider that kind of writing like second tier or not as um, professional? That's a very good question. Um, I think, 
I mean, I've run into this a lot. I think it's just talking about uh, topics that are either like everything that's sort of called considered the feminine. You were just talking about romance novels um, gets sort of relegated or, or called silly or it's considered frivolous or self-indulgent. There are all these words that we can use to uh, couch the criticism that actually is like, this is kind of female of you. Um, and I think writing about being interested in emotions or sex or interpersonal relationships is often seen as very either frivolous or female or whatever else. I can also see how people of an older generation who got a job right out of college, married and had kids would find like Lena Dunham or any millennial style memoir to be self-indulgent or derivative because they just can't relate and they think it's, you know, it's like just grow up already. And That's I think it's something that criticism we can, people have of millennials. Generally. Yeah. And I think, but that obviously extends to like the yeah. fiction or nonfiction they write. And so I think what we find relatable, it just isn't relatable for, I don't know, my parents or something. And, and they all, there's also a certain amount of just like, well, do you have to be talking about that? There's a like disclosure and what's private and what's public, I think means such a different thing to our parents than it does to millennials or whatever this next gen, gen Y, is that what's next? Gen Z. Gen Z. Gen, Z. Yeah, yes. gen Y is our parents. Or, no, no, I think Gen, gen Y is us. Gen that was, was the one I was looking for. Yeah. Before they yeah. on millennials. Very know, who confusing. Knows? Yeah. All right, well thanks for joining us, cool. Monica. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Monica. Yeah, thank you. This show may be called The Thrill, but we can't always live up to our name. The truth is that though there are many things in pop culture that thrill us, there are also a lot of things that do precisely the opposite, which is why we have decided to introduce a new segment to our podcast this week called The Kill. In short, a rundown of something we can't stand. Adrian? Yeah, so the thing that I would like to kill, uh, if you have if you have Facebook or social media, you'll definitely have seen this. Uh, there are these lip sync battles that started on the Jimmy Fallon uh, show, and if you've seen these, they they're sort of unfathomable to me. And they, but apparently people love them. Uh, where people, famous people, go up there, put on a song they like, and then battle each other. It's gonna work like this. We're gonna take turns lip syncing sections of well-known songs. Uh, each of us uh, trying to lip sync better than the other guy. We don't know which songs the other one's picked. We haven't told each other. Uh, only the guy performing knows which song is coming next. We're going to do two songs. Paul, as a guest of the show, you get the first shot. Now, I don't really get it for a number of reasons. One, it's not karaoke. They're not really performing anything. They literally have microphones in front of their mouths that they're mouthing into. Um, and the only interesting thing is that they're celebrities doing it. They're not showing any talent. Uh, for the most part, all they're doing is like dressing up, uh, kind of funny. Um, and though they were segments, I was like, whatever, that's fine. They're short little things. Now they have their own TV show on Spike. Game is simple. Two stars perform, two songs, each while trying to outsync and outsight their opponent. The audience decides who did it the best. This is lip sync battle. Let the games begin. You have Chrissy Teigen uh, doing whatever Chrissy Teigen does, which is occasionally enter in with some wisecracks. And then LL Cool J, which is extra sad for me, um, because it, what, it, what it's doing to me is that it implies that this is like kind of like a rap battle, but it's not a rap battle. You're just, they're just two people facing off, mouth, like moving their mouths at each other. Uh, that to me is inexplicable. And on top of that, now they have a TV show. I just don't get it. I completely disagree with you. 
When I first saw that lip sync battles were trending before I had watched them, I thought this does look very stupid, that it doesn't showcase any sort of talent anyone can lip sync. But then when I watched them, I, I really, really liked them. And I realized the reason why is that it's fun to watch celebrities do normal people things. It's just like in Us Weekly stars, they're just like us. Yeah, it requires no talent. Um, it's pretty easy to do, and that's why it's fun to watch. I also disagree with you, but for different reasons than Emma. You say that th- the people that do it show no talent, but I disagree entirely because a performance is a talent. So just because they don't sing or they didn't write that song or they're not dancing around, although they kind of dance a little bit, I guess, it's about entertaining people. And I've had this kind of this sort of debate with others before about songwriters versus performers. What about people who didn't write their own songs but perform them and perform them well? Are, are they less valuable than people who write songs? No. And I realize that's, that lip syncing is not the same as singing something, but entertainment is entertainment. And that's what they're doing. Right. But I guess my, my confusion is that this like doesn't entertain me at all. And to go back to Emma's point, uh, yes, the, the, the inherent pleasure is that you're seeing celebrities like do what you said, quote unquote, normal stuff. This isn't normal stuff. Normal people don't Everyone have access. Everyone lip syncs. In That's their, true. It, sort of. Where? Yeah, Where do you guys lip sync? In the car or. You guys aren't singing? If they were singing along badly, so for instance, so In everyone's club. everyone's seen Vin Diesel do the karaoke thing. Uh, there's there's these videos out there of, of Vin Diesel sadly doing karaoke, and I love that. I get that. It's honest. It's hilarious. People do that. People do karaoke. don't do lips I mean they don't certainly don't do lip sync battles where they get dressed up in as Jimmy Fallon did like a, a frock and have like an entire chapel choir come out to do like a prayer um, they don't you know get dressed up like uh, I don't know common dressed up I can't remember exactly as he was what. Lionel Richie yeah but I don't think that's the value of it at all it doesn't matter if people do it or not because whether people do lip sync or even if they sing if they don't do it well that's because that's not their job people who are professional performers so some of these these lip sync battles have had people like Anne Hathaway Common John Legend you mentioned like and when uh, Jimmy Fallon did it he had Will Ferrell like these are really popular and very talented performers they're just performing in a different way I mean entertainers are if if they're entertaining and if they know how to do it they it doesn't matter what what hat they wear that day yeah like if they really know what they're doing they'll drag be drag for example is there's a lot of lip syncing in that, and it's still really entertaining. Yeah. So Adrian, you could put on a dress and lip sync, but I don't. I don't know how it, that you'd be as entertaining as somebody who does that as a profession. I just mouthed a bunch. Uh, I hope you guys found that really entertaining. That is really not the same thing. <laughs> no, I think it is. Of course you do. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at mclean's.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. Leave us a rating or a comment on iTunes and drop us a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. Both are on iTunes and Stitcher. We're also excited to announce that McLean's Books podcast, The Bibliopod, will be out next week. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J. And me at Adrian Kaylee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>